Don't be mistaken, the great moments in history are not staked out by the acts of great men, but by the pursuit of God for the soul of people both great and small. Welcome everyone to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen. I'm the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, and I am the Executive Director of the International Outreach and Disciple Making Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. Our full-time missionaries are working to equip and engage the body of Christ in many countries around the world. You can learn more about how we're raising up national evangelists, disciple makers, and church planters by going to traincpe.org. That's traincpe.org. Now for our lesson today, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 5 and the story of Naaman, the commander of the armies of Syria. There we see that God sovereignly controls the outcome of nations while he pursues the soul of a man. I want you to see, and again, you know the story. Here is Naaman, who is this wonderful, powerful man, but he has leprosy, and he's directed to go to Israel and to the prophet in Israel because that prophet, he is told, has the power to save him from his leprosy. He goes to Elisha. Elisha ultimately tells him, doesn't come out to speak to him, but sends a messenger out from his door as this great, powerful man is sitting outside of his door with his entourage of chariots and camels bringing all of his riches and Elisha doesn't go out to meet him, but simply sends a messenger out to him saying, go to the Jordan River and dip seven times and then you'll be made clean. And Naaman is upset because he could have dipped in all the clean rivers that were in Syria and he could have been told to do some great and magnificent thing, but instead he's told simply to do this task of bathing in this filthy river, the Jordan. And he's going to go back angry and the people that are with him remind him that he didn't come he didn't come to Elisha because he was a good and great man. He came to Elisha because his life was riddled with leprosy. He needed to be made well. And that was the thing that was determining the outcome of his life. And that's the thing that loomed before his future was his leprosy, which is a picture of sin. No matter how good you are, no matter how famous you are, no matter what great accomplishment you've had, no matter how nice you are to your neighbors and kind you are to people around you, your goodness doesn't change the fact that without Christ you are leprous and diseased in your sin. And that's the issue before you that's determining your future. And that needs to be addressed. They reminded Naaman of that, and Naaman then relented to their wisdom and bathed in the Jordan River, and he is wonderfully, powerfully healed, and he comes up in his we're told that his skin is as clean and as pure as a baby or a child's skin. That's the story. But what I want you to note here right now for our purpose this morning is I want you to see that there is a sovereign working of God to direct Naaman to himself. That God is orchestrating all kinds of details in this man's life to bring him to himself and faith in himself. And we'll speak about this next week. But Naaman becomes a believer in the one true God of Israel. He becomes one who has, we would say, saving faith in God as a result of these events. Proverbs 21.1 is a key verse for us to think about when we think about God's sovereignty and how God's sovereignty works in the lives of powerful individuals. Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart is as a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. What is clearly stated here is that no king escapes the sovereign will of God, that God's will is accomplished in the purposes of individuals who are the supposed powers and potentates of their age, and yet in the end of the age, what will be proved out is that they were merely 
being guided and directed and pawns in the hand of God, that all that was accomplished was really because God was the only supreme power and potentate working over their lives, and they were, in a sense, powerless to resist his purposes and his intents for the nation. That's what the passage is telling us. So later on in the history of Judah, we have a story where King Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, lays siege of Jerusalem, and he is seeking to bring Jerusalem down. He's laying siege of Jerusalem, and he's confronting King Hezekiah at that time, and at that time, he, he has a letter read before the gates of Jerusalem and before the walls of Jerusalem, in which he boasts that no god from any other nation has been able to resist his power and that the god of Hezekiah and the god of Judah was not going to be able to resist his power either. And he was not going to be able to protect the people of Jerusalem from his might. Hezekiah goes to Isaiah the prophet and shares with him what's happening and what's taking place and he pleads before God himself and Isaiah comes with the word from God to be given to Sennacherib the king. The passage that we're going to read affirms what we've just read in Proverbs 21.1. And Isaiah, the prophet, says this and gives answer to Sennacherib's claims. Let me just read it to you. I have it written down. By your messengers you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the heights of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Verse 25, God answers, Did you not hear long ago how I made it? From the ancient times how I formed it? Now I've brought it to pass that you should be for the crushing of fortified cities in the heaps of ruin. In other words, what God is saying to Sennacherib is, you thought you did this? I did this. This is my work. Actually, go to Isaiah chapter 10, verses 13. And here we have again the Assyrians making the same boast and God answering to their boast. In verse 13 of Isaiah 10, we read the same basic message. Here's what the Assyrians are saying. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also I have removed the boundaries of people. I have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathers eggs that are left, I've gathered up all the earth. And there's no one who moved his wing, nor opened his mouth, not even a peep. That's the boast of the Assyrian. God answers, shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw magnify itself against he who saws with it? Or if a rod could wield itself against the one who lifted it up? Or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood? Sennacherib, you're a tool in my hand. You're only doing what I want to accomplish and do. The heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever, wherever he wants. That's what God is saying here. God is in control of the guiding actions of kings. He uses them all to his ends and his purposes. And that should be a tremendously profound comfort to you. It seems oftentimes when we consider kings and rulers that this is the one place where our minds want to go in reference to them. 
that God would rule, that God would overrule, that God would control them and direct them so that they would do what God wants to do and what God wants to have happen so that the nation might be protected and God is actually, actually promising us that that's the case. And here we have this story of Naaman, a great man and a powerful man in Syria, but here's the interesting thing. The story is not about the unfolding of Naaman doing what God purposes for the nations. It's the story of what God is doing in order to bring that man to himself. When you look at the story, there is a testament here that God has used Naaman in the same way that he uses all powerful people because it says in verse 1 that by him the Lord has given victory to Syria. That the victories that Syria's had over its enemies through Naaman has been God's plan and God's purpose and God is controlling all those things. And so we do see this picture of God sovereignly working to direct Naaman and use Naaman for his purposes in history, but, but actually... There's more to the story than that. God has a greater interest in the movement of nations here. God has placed Naaman in this position, not only to exercise his sovereign direction over a nation and nations, but to sovereignly direct Naaman himself into faith and belief in him. God's interested in the man. So here's the first lesson. The great story of history is not a study of the movement of nations but the story of God's pursuit of individual souls for his worship. That's the great story. That's the takeaway. The ancient Greek historian Plutarch came up with this idea. He he lived during the age of the apostles, the early apostles. He's most famous for his belief that history is a study of great individuals. That idea was picked up again by Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish philosopher in the mid-1800s. And around 1840, Carlyle came up with this idea of a hero study of history. And he said this, that the history of the world is but the biography of great men. If you want to really understand history, just follow how great men's lives are lived and played out. And you'll understand how the world plays out in its history. But when God tells the story of history... We learn that it's a story of his pursuit of people to save them and bring them unto himself. It's a pursuit of God to seek and save those who are lost. It's the story of God, the Spirit of God, seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. And our role and our place in history is to pursue that end with God and to join in in that search. So take your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And let me read to you verses 1 through 4. Actually, Let me kind of read it to you the way that oftentimes we read it. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. By the way, the word in Greek for supplication, the word in Greek for prayers, and the word in Greek for intercessions are almost generic. In other words, what they mean is pray, pray, pray. There's slight variations in the meaning, but they're very slight. And so, in a sense, when the person was reading this, they saw that God was just basically using every word he had come up with to say, I urge all that all, speaking of the church, that's the all that he's addressing, that all the individuals in the church, that they pray, pray, pray with thanks for all men, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. You'll see that I skipped a little passage there. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence for it's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men, that's all people, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What we read from that and what we understand that is that God is inviting us to pray that all kinds of people that surround our life 
would come to a saving knowledge of the peace that only God could provide and the transforming grace of God that would lead them into godliness. And that the interesting thing here is that as we pray in that way, as we pray that God would bring people into a life of quietness and peace before them because they're reconciled to him, and that God might lead them into a life in which they're transformed into godliness so that they might live to the reverence of God, as we pray in that way, whether they respond to that prayer or not, our lives are changed, that we are drawn to those things. If I pray, oh God, I pray that my neighbors might be brought to know the peace and the quietness of being reconciled and right with you, as I pray that way, my own life becomes deepened in the sense of peace and reconciliation that I have with God. I'm brought into that state myself. God brings me into a position where I exalt in that peace and that sense of reconciliation. And if I pray, oh God, I pray, dear God, that the people of my community and that my friend might be transformed, that he might be made godly like you through your presence and your life, and that he might begin to worship you and glorify you and honor you, when you pray in that way, whether that happens in the life of that individual or not, you experience that in your own life. You experience an increased awareness of the work of God, refining you to make you more and more like the Lord Jesus, and you yourself are led to worship him more and more. Your prayers for others begins to mark out the parameters for the extent and the depth of your own life. So we read the passage and we see that we're praying for the salvation of others. And as we pray for the salvation of others, we, in a sense, dip our foot further and further into a joy and experience of that salvation for ourselves. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. First, go to traincpe.org traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.